If you have your Bibles, please open to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. Last week, we ended with Jesus calming a great storm. And the disciples were noticeably freaked out and panicked by that. Less about the storm going away, but the question that plagued them, who then is this? My prayer for you over this last week is that you've been considering that last question throughout this last week. That you've been truly considering, who then is this? That when the Jesus that you think of comes to mind, who is he really? And is he the Jesus of the Bible? As Mark has organized his gospel, he's done it in such a way where there are some back-to-back-to-back events that he brings forward to us that demands our attention. And it started with Jesus calming the storm and being rid of the chaos that's there. And now it's going to shift instead to Jesus calming the chaos that existed within one person. This person found himself in a horrific shape. We're going to start in Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The man that we are meeting is quite possibly the most miserable man described in all of Scripture. He was unclean in every possible way. There's at least four ways that Mark highlights for us. Well, first is that he had an unclean spirit. He had a demon that had taken over him. Secondly, He had lived among the dead. Now, according to Jewish law, you were forbidden, you were ceremonially unclean if you touched a dead person. But over time, they added to that. So if you touched anything that then also touched a dead person, you were declared unclean. So if you were to touch a casket, if you were to touch a tomb, even though you hadn't actually made contact with the body, you were declared unclean. And here this man is This is where he has made his home, is among the tombs. Thirdly, he lived in Gentile territory. The land of the Gerasenes was on the east side of the lake. That was part of the Decapolis, these ten cities, and they were Gentile towns. So here this man is living among Gentiles. And we don't actually get this detail until later in the story, so I'm going to ruin a piece of it, but I'll introduce it here. He lived near pig farmers. Pigs were unclean to Jews. To be even near them would have been to have made himself unclean. So here we have among the most miserable people in all of scripture. This man likely never had any human contact with anyone. These four limitations would have prevented any self-respecting Jew from getting anywhere near him. 
He certainly didn't fool somebody who had a demon who was living among the tombs near a pig farm in a Gentile town. Everything was going against him in every possible way. He had no connection, no relationships, and worse than that, he had no hope. So here comes Jesus and the disciples, almost as if Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do when he directed the boat to land where it landed. Starting in verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. I debated whether or not to actually use like a demonic voice there. Um, I had a bad experience in college. I, I lived on the ninth floor of a, of a 10 floor dorm. I had friends on the fourth floor and periodically would just prank call them just for kicks and giggles. And one night, I'm not sure what really inspired me. I called, I asked for Denise. Denise took the phone and I unwisely said, I'm the devil child, you're next. Um, and then hung up the phone. Uh, my friend Denise uh, had a very strong, deeply uh, held Catholic faith. A few minutes later, Denise's roommate called me. She said, Carl, was that you? Wow, what are you talking about? Carl, was that you? Yes. Carl, Denise's aunt just passed away. and She found out 30 minutes ago. <sighs> of course. The life of Carl. <laughs> and he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. The question that pops up first is, who is speaking? Mark doesn't make it all that clear to us. Let us know, is this the man who is speaking or is it the demon that is speaking? Fortunately, this account is recorded for us also in the Gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 8, we read this. Behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So it seems then that it is the demons who are the ones that are speaking. But notice what they say. It's really, really interesting. I'll highlight it for you. Behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Oh, this tells us something. It tells us a lot about why Jesus directed the boat where he did and why Jesus is going to do what he's eventually going to do. These demons knew something. While it was certainly time for this man to experience redemption and to be freed from the demons, it was not yet time for the demons to experience their final destruction, and they knew it. The, Jesus, the demons knew far more about Jesus than perhaps even the disciples did. The demons knew exactly who Jesus was. That's why they were able to identify him by name and by his title, Son 
of God. Or the way that he's described in Mark 5, son of the most high God. These demons knew exactly who Jesus was, but they also knew his power. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is doing all this, is having this interaction while his disciples, who have just survived like their worst boat trip ever, are watching all of this. The demons knew his power. And now the disciples are confronted once again. Who then is this? Now, it's not written for us in the text that way, but certainly that question was on their mind to have gotten out of the storm onto the lake. And now even the demons are calling him by name, by title and saying, why are you here before the time? Because they knew that their time was limited. They knew that they only had a certain amount of time and they knew that there was coming a point in time where they would be destroyed. So in a way, they're protesting against Jesus saying, what are you doing here? It's not yet time. You know it and we know it. And certainly, Jesus knew it, which then makes what happens next fill in the gaps and make sense. Why does Jesus do what he did, does? Starting in verse 11, now a great herd of pigs. Now this is one of those scenes where when we get to heaven, I really hope that God has a big screen TV, preferably IMAX, where we get to see this whole thing unfold because I'm just, okay, I'm revealing too much about my own idiosyncrasies and what interests me. I want to see what happened here. I want to see footage of it. A great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. There you go, salted pork. That's where we're at. (laughs) This is phenomenal. But it makes sense why Jesus does this. Why does Jesus do this instead of destroying them? Because Jesus knows it's not yet the time for this. But I am going to rid this man. Now here's the question for you. Do you remember the demon's name? Legion. Mark 5, 9. What is your name? He replied, my name is Legion for we are many. Legion was the largest unit And the Roman army was about 6,000 troops. So the question is, was there really 6,000 demons inside this man? Perhaps it's hyperbole. I'm going to make the argument that no, it wasn't 6,000. It was instead 2,000. And why am I making that argument? How many pigs went uh, cliff diving? 2,000 of them. Now, is that something to like, you know, really get into a fight over? Probably so, but we're not going to do it today. But regardless, we have Jesus demonstrating once again his outstanding, enormous power, even over the chaos of demons. Now, there's an argument that's come up. I just want to address it here a little bit. Was Jesus being wasteful? Or was this a lack of compassion by Jesus? Now, let's set the scene again. There's pig farmers who own Pigs. Demons say, hey, don't destroy us. Let us go into the pigs. Jesus says, all right, fine. Into the pigs you go. Off go 2,000 pigs into the sea. Jesus just may have wrecked 
somebody's income for a long, long time. Some have argued that it, it, it was a cruel act to treat the pigs this way. So was this a lack of compassion by Jesus? And was this wasteful? The answer is a resounding no. And you make the argument that instead Jesus is showing incredible compassion. And particularly in our culture today, it would be really important for us to focus in on the compassion that Jesus shows. Now, I promise you, I'm not going to get off into too terribly long of a rant on this. But we have to acknowledge, you just listen for about 30 seconds to what's going on in the world around us. And you recognize that we live in a culture of death. Life is not celebrated. We're constantly looking for reasons and excuses to eliminate life either because they're unwanted children or because we think that the elderly among us don't deserve to be around here anymore. There's a movement, and it's hard to believe. It's a movement. It is the anti-children movement. And they are protesting in the streets, pleading with people to stop bearing children. We live in a culture of death. And what Jesus just demonstrated for us is that human life is more valuable than any other form of life on the planet. Human life is always more valuable than animal life. Now, is that the main point of this passage? Absolutely not. But we'd be foolish to ignore it. And that we celebrate and we protect life. And that we celebrate life from womb to tomb. Every single person is designed and created in the image of God. And they are worthy of the dignity that God affords to them. And so we celebrate the fact that Jesus valued this one man's life more than the lives of 2,000 pigs. What happens next is very revealing. Starting verse 14, the herdsmen fled. And told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Isn't that interesting? There are two distinct responses to what happened here. One is begging Jesus to go away. The other is begging Jesus, let me go with you. And what I think is really fascinating about this, it's just kind of snuck in there. If you read too quickly, you'll miss it. Verse 17 again, we'll flip back to it, I'll be nice. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, Jesus is essentially saying, you don't want me here? Okay, I'll go. Don't you think that's interesting? Jesus will allow you to reject him. At no point does Jesus force himself on you. 
But as they're begging him to go, they are revealing the condition of their hearts. They've been confronted with the purest holiness of God. And it fills them with dread, with terror, with panic. And the best response that they're able to generate is, you have to go away. As we're confronted by your holiness, we can't stand it. And you have to go. Meanwhile, the one who had been possessed by legion is begging Jesus, let me come with you. I want to be where you are. I don't get the sense from this man's request. Let me come with you because I want to see more cool tricks that you do. Instead, it is, I owe you everything. And I want to be wherever you are so I can give you whatever I possibly can. You've given me my life back. You've restored my hope. I want to be wherever you are. And so Jesus' response to him then is even more fascinating. Verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Two things that stand out about this passage. Number one, Jesus has power over everything, including the demonic. He is not limited by anything. He has control over everything. And even though the demons were right, that it was before the time, they still knew you can destroy us with a blink of your eyelashes. And the disciples are watching all this unfold having just come off of this wicked storm. And, well, we'll get to it in a couple of weeks, but there's still more to come where the disciples are going to find themselves with their jaws on the floor, trying to understand who this is. In the last passage, Jesus has control over nature. And in this passage, Jesus has control over the demons. And the disciples are once again likely wondering, who is this? Jesus has authority over everything. So let's briefly talk, briefly, briefly, briefly. Talk about demon possession. That's not a topic that often comes up. I don't know how often you guys talk about demon possession. But it's a worthy conversation. We see evidence of demon possession throughout the pages of our New Testament. So it's clearly a condition that existed during Jesus' day and in the early stages of the church. Is demon possession real today? Yes. And to settle the question, is it possible for a believer in Jesus to be possessed by a demon? Absolutely, unequivocally, no. Is it possible for a believer in Christ to be afflicted by a demon? Absolutely, yes. 
Some of you are wrestling with your technology at home. You know there's demons. <laughs> to be afflicted by a demon is not the same as being possessed by one. Are there demonically possessed people that live in our world today? Absolutely there are. I won't go through some of the headlines and the storylines, but some of the activity, some of the crimes that have been committed against humanity, the only way to begin to describe it is as fully demonic. But this is not an issue for the believer. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, at the moment of your conversion, the Holy Spirit instantly took up residence within your life. And the moment the Holy Spirit takes up residence within your life, Demons have no chance of ever being able to move in. But they will make your life difficult. They will bring challenges and difficulties your way. If it's not some weird thing going haywire on you, it is the, the oppression that comes with the dark thoughts, the questionable desires. And so what do you do when you find yourself afflicted and oppressed by demons. I wish I could give you a really strong, like airtight answer that will solve it forever, that will be creative and marvelous. But instead, all I have is to offer to you what Jesus offered. It's prayer. You pray and you pray and you pray. And you invite your friends, your neighbors, your church family to pray with you and to pray for you. If you are finding yourself routinely oppressed by demonic activity, what else could you do? No amount of your skill-based activity is going to do anything. This is a supernatural event, so we need to invite supernatural power. Carl, you're being really creative in trying to encourage us to come to concert of prayer. I know! One of the reasons why we do conscious of prayer is one, so that you'll pray more. Two, so you'll see that prayer isn't quite as complicated or challenging as maybe you make it out to be. But also so that we get used to the supernatural presence of what happens when God's people pray. We will spend time tonight praying for each other. Now, I'm not asking you to identify, yes, I'm being oppressed by demons. You can if you want to, and we will pray like crazy for you. But if you're experiencing that, if you need prayer, then come join us tonight. Let us pray for you. One of the reasons why we encourage you to write down your prayer requests and to put them in the box at the back of the church is so that we can pray for you, so that your church family is praying for you. So if you look in the seat back in front of you, there's a little card, a little communication card. Write down your prayer request. If you want to keep it confidential, mark the box that says confidential. Just our staff will pray for it. But we want to pray for you. Why? Because we recognize that there is a real battle happening out there in the supernatural realm. And you need all the help that you can get. And we trust that God's Holy Spirit working in, with, and through his church body will do something to create a different set of conditions for you. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen immediately. I don't know if it'll happen next week, next year, four decades from now. I don't know. I just know we're told to pray. And we want to pray with you and we want to pray for you. Why? Because Jesus has full authority. And we want to trust him with that authority. And we don't want to take from him 
what is actually only due to him. We want to let him do what only he can do. So that's number one on this. First really big point is that Jesus has full authority over everything. The sub point is let us pray for you. Point number two is this response that Jesus gives. Draw it out real quickly. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. We are a church that is served by Village Missions. We make that pretty open and known. That's why every Sunday we highlight the Village Missionary of the Week. Uh, This church in its past has sent out 12 other Village Missions couples. We kind of find ourselves periodically on the prowl looking for future Village Missionaries. I'm looking at you. We encourage you that if God has placed a call on your heart to go to the nations, surrender to that and go. But we also recognize that sometimes the best place for you to go is home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. To be an ambassador for the message of the gospel does not always mean that you have to be a village missionary. It does not mean that you have to be a global missions worker. Sometimes the best missions that you can do would be to go home. Some of you have children living at home that desperately need to hear the truth of the gospel and need to hear it from mom and dad. So mom and dad, go home. Share the gospel with your children. Disciple them. Encourage them to grow in their faith. Some of you have friends at school, at work, other groups that you're connected with. You might not have to go to far-flung exotic places like Lisbon, Iowa, or Falmouth, Michigan. Maybe you just have to go down the road. Maybe you just have to show up to work tomorrow. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Sometimes we make evangelism way more complicated than it really needs to be. We think we have to memorize, you know, know, these four laws and seven steps and 12 keys and all that. When really what it comes down to is you've had a story. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. If you've been saved by the goodness of Christ, you have a story to tell. And apparently for Jesus, telling your story is a sufficient evangelistic presentation. If we can flip backwards. Look what happens in verse 20, though. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. You have a story to tell. And it's not your responsibility to convince people of your story. 
That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not your responsibility to make a conversion happen. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not your responsibility to make sure that they do everything they say that you told them to do. That's not your job. Your job is to tell your story. And let's position this correctly. Your story isn't actually your story. It is God writing his story through your life. The hero of your story is not you. The hero of your story is what the Lord has done and how he has had mercy on you. Isn't that tremendous? Jesus, this one with tremendous authority, shows tremendous mercy. God has a story that he's written into your life. Whether you serve with village missions, whether you go plant churches in far-flung places around the globe, or whether you just go home, you have a story to tell. So, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so very much for a Savior who rescued us. And we thank you that's a savior who is not weak, but one who is filled with authority and who is also filled with mercy. We thank you that because of the authority of Jesus, we need not fear the work that the demons might try to do. And we thank you that because of the authority of your son, we have freedom, we have forgiveness, we have assurance. And we thank you because of the work of your son. Rescuing us, we have a story to tell. So Father, I pray for the homes, the businesses, the organizations that we are all connected to in some way, shape, or form. You have planted each one of us in a different sphere of relationships. I pray that there will be soft minds and soft hearts to be receptive to hear the story of how you have shown us mercy. How you have rescued us from our sin, you've rescued us from ourselves, and you've rescued us from your wrath. And you've given us the promise of grace, mercy, hope, peace, and joy everlasting, and the assurance of eternity. Father, we thank you for the work that your word continues to do, to transform minds and hearts. We pray that will continue today, tomorrow, and the weeks to come. We ask all these things in the powerful name of Christ. Amen.